We are back in Luke chapter 4 as we return to what we introduced two weeks ago as the theme passage for our year together. As we have grown over these last four years, that early vision of the type of church we wanted to be is at this stage as much a description as it is a vision. And we want to be more. We want to grow in that. But we're looking now to have fresh motivation. That's what vision really does. Without vision, people perish, churches die. Vision is that picture of what could be if God moved that captures all of us and unites us as we pursue that together. We're excited to be introducing this idea of kingdom come as a fresh way to think about who we are as a church, citizens of the kingdom of God, living in this world, in this culture, and what that should look like. The mission of the church is so much bigger than what we've turned it into. At some point, we turn the gospel into a sales pitch that gets people into heaven. What's the basic minimum information I need to know so that when I die, I go to heaven? Now, is it important that people find grace, that they find forgiveness, and that they know that they have a hope of heaven when they die? Yes. Is that part of the gospel? Absolutely. I'm not abandoning that. Not replacing it with a social kind of activist gospel. What I'm saying is it's a central component to a much bigger story. A much bigger good news. And we find it, if we look at it afresh, through Jesus' eyes. And that's why our theme verse is Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19. Please say it with me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. Now, let's again read the story in which Jesus makes this declaration, beginning at verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand in the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. But Jesus answered, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And with that, the devil departed. Jesus then returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. 
And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written and read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Now the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is Luke's story of how Jesus began his whole ministry. I backed up a little earlier this week to include the scene of the temptation of Jesus because it reminds us that this world, the world into which Jesus came, has a master. He is the prince of the power of the air, Scripture says. It's a reminder that Jesus came into a world that was broken and lost, that had been lost to sin and therefore was given over to darkness. We today live in that world. That's what we're going to look at. How does the coming of the kingdom of God and Jesus' announcement that it had come right then in that moment that it was already fulfilled How does this idea of justice and righteousness and broken hearts being mended and those who are ill finding health and those who are in prison set free and those who are oppressed finding justice, we hear those incredible things that in the coming of the kingdom, God's favor comes to earth. We look around and we see a very different story. 2,000 years later, we could easily ask, where is the kingdom. Peace was promised, and yet for the last 3,000 years, there have been no more than 268 years of peace, only 8% of recorded history. Since World War II ended, 250 major wars, over 50 million combatants have died since the end of World War II. Coming of the kingdom promised justice, but justice is not an accomplished fact. Women, children stolen from their homes, sold into slavery. Genocide still exists. People are still pressed down because of the prejudice that comes from our various ethnicities and our cultural differences. Healing was a part of the promise of the kingdom. And yet, even as we speak today, there are 34 million people suffering from AIDS Tens of thousands of AIDS orphans who have lost both of their parents. Children are trying to raise children. The current Ebola epidemic, the CDC just sent out a projection that by January there will be half of a million people who will have contracted Ebola. By the way, our own organization that we partner with in Uganda and in the Dominican Republic, their largest orphanage in Sierra Leone now is only 16 miles away from the Ebola epidemic. They're desperately trying to raise funds to build a fence around their property to protect almost a thousand that they've taken into their orphanage and school. For many of, of our brothers and sisters around the world, these things are right at their doorstep. You don't need to look any farther than the morning paper to read about broken marriages, the latest ISIS atrocity 
and the war that we have now declared against them. Missing children whose bodies are found. 2,000 homeless people in Worcester alone, 20 plus gangs. 1.2 million abortions in the United States annually. It, it would be fair to look at those things and to ask, where is the kingdom? Christians and churches don't seem to be faring much better. We struggle and live in the same broken world. We die at the same percentage. We suffer persecution. Our marriages fall apart. The organized church is as much a place where children are abused by pedophiles than any organization in the world. Churches show anything but the peace of Christ based on how they do politics. Even the church shows very little sign of the kingdom of God. Where, where is the kingdom? I want to read a quote from a book that has inspired my thinking around this series. In fact, the title is uh, the title we've chosen for the series, Kingdom Come, Alan Wakabayashi. And he says this, The gospel is the good news that in Jesus, God came to assert his kingly reign over his lost creation. Sicknesses are to be healed, evil banished, injustice eradicated, and forgiveness for our sins pronounced. All of creation is to come under the kingly rule of its creator. That's wonderful. So where is it? What happened? That was 2,000 years ago. Did the kingdom really come? Did God really enter into our world to restore his broken creation? Or was Jesus mistaken? Or maybe God's just slow. You see the problem? The good news of the kingdom was about a wholesale renewal and restoration of the entire created order. Humanity reconciled to its creator. People and nations at peace. Isaiah pointed to a time when creation would be in harmony as the wolf lies down with the lamb and children playing in the cobra's nest. He speaks of the end of wars as swords are turned into plowshares. He promises that the Lord will wipe every tear. Yet we look around us today and are quickly reminded that the kingdom has not come. Or has it? You even look back at the first followers of Jesus and really an honest look at the book of Acts will help you understand that if the kingdom had come, then even they didn't experience it in its fullness. They suffered illness. They died. They were persecuted. They were shipwrecked. There was sin among them that had to be rooted out. So as early as we go back to the beginnings of the church, we see this reality that even though Jesus said, this is fulfilled, and throughout his ministry proclaimed that the kingdom of God was here, it was among us, and at the end of his ministry, after he died and rose again from the dead, when he said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, he was indeed affirming that the kingdom had come because the kingdom is about the reign of Jesus, not the geographic dominion, but the act of reigning. So when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he's ending his ministry where he began. I reign now. All authority is mine. If that's true, we have to ask the question, what are we missing? 
it may be that we're making the very same mistake about the kingdom of God as did Jesus' first listeners. We think of the kingdom of God as a singular event some other time in the future. And we abandon the possibility that this is a reality somehow. It wasn't just a symbolic gesture. He didn't say, A, this is fulfilled among you. B, you don't accept it and I come back in 3,000 years and we try again. No, he said, it's done. It's accomplished. So how do we rectify that? Well, let me start by just sharing with you the, the viewpoint of the Hebrew people related to the kingdom. When they read the messianic prophecies about the one who would come, they viewed it through centuries of tradition, but they also viewed it through their current context. Rome had oppressed them and taken away their glory. There was no king on the throne of David. When they thought of a kingdom coming, they thought of a singular event that they referred to as the day of the Lord, in which the Messiah would come, and everything would change. It looks something like this. They were in the old age. Sin had brought about death and injustice in the world. And they saw the coming of their Messiah ushering in what was referred to as the age to come. And at that point, all sin, death, and injustice would be put away. And eternal life and peace and justice would reign forever. He will reign forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. They love those verses. The Messiah would come. God would restore Israel to its glory. Rome and all of the Gentile evil pagan world will be judged harshly, and Israel alone would shine. That was their idea of the world. And is that not in some ways, even though we have all these very complicated timelines about the end of the world, we've got another movie coming out that reboots the Left Behind series now with a bigger budget and more well-known actors. (laughs) We debate all the specifics about that timeline. Don't we also in some ways see that? There's one camp that I have great respect for. And one of the things that drives them is this statement. Time's short and hell's hot. A lot of work to get people out of hell into heaven. Well, yeah, that's right. But there's so much more too. It's this idea that things are just really bad and someday Jesus is going to come and we're going to be better and then everybody else is just going to go to hell. We're just hanging in there. That's not the gospel that Jesus spoke about. But that's what the children of Israel expected. And By the way, it's why they rejected him. They missed out on another part of the Messianic prophecies that spoke about, as Lou said last week, a suffering servant. He was despised and rejected by men, Isaiah 53. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. It pleased the Lord to lay on him the iniquities of us all. And by his wounds we're healed. They didn't see that part. So when God begins to enact his plan and the real kingdom shows up, they missed it. This confused even John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is going about saying things and doing things that don't look like that first picture of the kingdom. 
And so even John, when he's imprisoned by the evil Herod, sends messengers to Jesus and asks him, are you really the promised one? Or should we be looking for someone else? What was Jesus' answer? He says, go back and tell John what you see. The blind see, the dead are raised. So he pointed to this very thing as proof to John. He says, yes, it's here. It might not be what you pictured, John, but it's here. This is more like what Jesus spoke of when he talked about the kingdom. Next slide. This is what the prophets saw, a Christ who would come. But when he came first, he would come as Savior. He would come to provide the sacrifice so that the rest of God's plan could take place. This is what Jesus spoke about. And so what we have is the coming of Jesus, his declaration that the year of God's favor has begun because God has showed up on planet earth. He's going to pay for the forgiveness of sins. And he modeled what that kingdom looks like. The blind were healed. The brokenhearted were comforted. Hungry people were fed by the thousands, by two loaves and fishes. Raised people from the dead. Glimpses of the kingdom, but not in its fullness because there would be another coming. Jesus' teaching about the kingdom is that it is both now, but yet at the same time, it is yet to come. The age to come was still something in the future, even though the kingdom had come. Look at Mark 1.15. Let's say this together. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Let's go to Matthew 28. Jesus' last words to his followers. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. But now also look at Luke 18, where he reminds those who follow him, no one who has left everything for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much, both in this age and in the age to come. Do you see the distinction of three very different things here? He speaks of the kingdom of God, and he's saying people are making sacrifices in the kingdom of God right now, but yet even as the kingdom of God exists, there is this age, and there is yet the age to come. Jesus talked parables about this. He talked about the kingdom being like a master who had come, and he had great land, he had a kingdom, and he put his servants in charge of that kingdom and went away for a time, promising to come back and hold them accountable for what they did in his absence. He talks about when the Son of Man will come in all of his glory and sit on a throne and there will be judgment. He talks about that as something yet to happen, even as he said, the kingdom is here now. That's why we understand that both the age now and the age to come is the kingdom of God. We are living out the reign of Christ in this world, in this world that is still under the influence of Satan, still under the control of sin. We have work to be done. And next week when we begin looking at how do we apply this idea of living in the kingdom now even while we're waiting for it in its fullness to come, how does that change who I am as a person? How does it change who we are as a church and what we're to be about? It's going to get really exciting to me because it'll expand our idea about why we do things. And it'll relax some of you about feeling like you've got to turn into an evangelist. 
What you have to be is a seeker of the kingdom of God. We all do that together. Grace finds its way into the lives of people. Oh, there's so much here that's exciting, but we don't have time to unwrap it today. But I want you just to think about this picture. The period we're in is illustrated beautifully by C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. How many have read it? Four human children find their way into a fantasy land through a wardrobe. There is a true king, Aslan. He is the Christ figure. Narnia is under the rule of the White Witch. And because of that, there is perpetual winter and no Christmas. Just cold. Once the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve come, Father Christmas shows up. And he says, Aslan is on the move. He gives them gifts. And what happens? The cold begins to slowly move away. The closer Aslan comes, the more his reign is experienced, the warmer the climate gets. The snow melts, the flowers bloom, the birds begin to nest. In a sense, that's the world we live in. The forces of darkness are battling to keep control of this world, but Christ is on the move. He's on the move. And wherever His reign begins to exert itself, spring comes, life comes, God's favor comes. And that's you and me, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. We are the vehicle to that springtime. Yeah, there'll be someday when Christ comes and then everyone's healed. All tears are wiped away. New heaven, new earth. But in the meantime, we get to be part of the great thawing as we bring the grace of God to the world around us. That's the mission. It's wonderful how great we get to be a part of it. Let's be inspired by that. Come back next week. Talk more about the details. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful image that the mission, the good news, is so much bigger than what we've turned it into. It just opens up what our life can be like, and it takes away some of the intimidation about what it means to spread the good news. We can all bring God's favor to the world around us. It's glorious to think about it. Thank you, Father. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.